I pray and trust that you had a blessed week this past week. They say that if you end your day thinking of a couple of positive things that you can be grateful for, that you thank God for, that it does wonders in helping ease thoughts of negativity or bring a little bit of relief to maybe more serious depressions or something of the sort. So, tonight would be a great time, if you haven't done it yet, before you close your eyes for your nightly rest, eight hours they tell us, offer up a prayer of thanksgiving. End your day on that positive note. Think, and you will find it. Think about how God has made himself known to you today and how he's blessed you, and recognize it, and just say thank you It's a great way to end the night. It's a good way to begin your sleep. As if you end on a good note, you're more likely to begin on a good note. You wake up in the morning thinking of the last thing. I want to share with you one little bit of news before we get into our message. This this has nothing to do with news per se, but last week we had inserts in the bulletin from our health ministries talking about the benefits of sunlight. Vitamin D and energy, and, and, and it makes you more alert, and so on. There is also really, really good uh, evidence to say that if you can get a little bit of sun on you in the first hour of waking up, that your alertness and, and the motivation actually lasts well into the day, and it helps start your, your body's natural rhythms uh, in a healthier way, that it does better than a cup of coffee, that it, it, it's good. It's good to do that. I also have another study I came across. This is not a new one, but it, it, it was new to me because it, it got emailed me to me this week. Um, this is a study from 2016 done in Sweden, so still very relevant. It was done with 29,500 and change women. And what they assessed were the differences in sun exposure as a risk factor for all-cause mortality. In other words, what benefit do you have compared to other risk factors if you just get some sun? Just get a little bit of sun. What they found primarily were three things. So this was a long-term over many years with a large sample group, 29,000-plus ladies. And what they found... First was that these women with active sun exposure, so that's actually being outside, uh, don't be locked up in a basement or just indoors with artificial lights, but get outside a little bit, and it doesn't have to be long, but a little bit. Active sun exposure habits were mainly at a lower risk of cardiovascular disease and non-cancer, non-cardiovascular disease death as compared to those who avoided sun exposure. Well, in the United States, the top two killers are cardiovascular disease and cancer. Top two. Um, and and it's, it's actually not close. <laughs> They're way up there, especially the first one. So if a little bit of active sun exposure can help reduce your cardiovascular disease risk, wouldn't that be a good thing? I think so. Two... As a result of increased survival, because what they find is that active sun exposure helps in your longevity. You'll live longer if you have active sun exposure. It's a good thing. As a result of this, 
the relative contribution of cancer death increased. Now that might sound like you don't want it. What we know is that the longer you live, the more at risk of developing cancer you have. Regardless of what causes you to live longer, the longer you live, the higher the risk. So if more sun means you live longer, you just happen to have a higher increased risk of cancer. They did not find a correlation, though, that the sun exposure brought about the cancer. Just that, you lived longer, and that increased your risk. And then three, and this is our last, this is our last one. Three, the point about the longevity-promoting properties of sunlight is driven home strongly by this. Non-smokers who avoided sun exposure had a life expectancy similar to smokers in the highest sun exposure category. If you don't smoke, but you avoid the sun, you're in the same risk in terms of your mortality risk as those who do smoke, but they get their sun. So what they concluded is that avoidance of sun exposure is a risk factor for death of a similar magnitude as smoking. I had no idea. I think that's good to know. I wanted to pass that on to add a little supplement to what we were already blessed with last week with our insert. Um, You can have everything right, but if you just lock yourself up indoors, you're putting yourself at risk. Uh, Go touch grass, go breathe the air, go let a little bit of sun hit, hit on your face and your arms, expose your skin a little bit to it, don't burn, don't do those things we know that, that aren't healthy, but a little bit. It'll help your hormone balance, it'll help your energy, and it helps your longevity and keeps you out of the higher risk categories. So now we're going to get into our message that was a freebie. If you'll indulge me in one more brief word of prayer, then we will dive in. Lord God, now that we are turning our attention in a focused way on your word, we thank you that you inspired the authors and you preserved it through time so it's not only a blessing and a benefit for an instruction and encouragement to those that have lived in the past, but also to us right now in the present. And we pray that that would be our reality. May we learn of you, may we learn more of ourselves, and may we appreciate the plan that you have for us. We pray this in your name. Amen. The last time I was here, I greeted you with a Shabbat Shalom. A, 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 was it Feliz Sabado, right? A happy Sabbath. A ton sabaton. That's Greek. They say that there are about 7,000 spoken languages in the world. I'm assuming they're including some dialects, but we'll just go with about 7,000 spoken languages. And about 300 writing systems. Mandarin, English, Spanish, and Arabic make up the top 10, and Bengali is also among them. So you can just kind of look at the countries around the world, and that makes sense. Mandarin, there's a lot of people that speak Mandarin uh, in China and elsewhere. Lots of people speak Spanish. 
the, the countries that have Arabic as their main language, uh, there's many, many, many of them. And then English, in addition to those places that speak it proper, like England and otherwise like American, it's also the world language. Um, if you happen to do anything in business, any kind of real international travel, you can generally find people who speak English. That's the accepted international language. Uh, I am not very good at most languages. I do like them. I find some of them more confusing than others. I have heard that American English is one of the hardest to learn because we just, we're a hodgepodge of so many different other languages kind of come together. And then in America, we have slang and we have other things. And then you go to the South and just, you know, forget about it. Of the languages in the world, it seems, though, that aside from spoken languages, we have other languages that we can consider. I'm thinking of Morse code. That's a language. I'm not up on my Morse code, but I believe it's a standard. I think Morse code is a standard. They don't do Morse code in Mandarin. Uh, you know, they, they, it's the same dats and dashes, uh, dashes and dots for their words. Uh, that's, that's a universal language. I think of music as a language and a, and a universal language at that. You can, you can express beauty and sound and rhythm and, and all of what comes with music anywhere around the world, no matter what you look like, no matter what you talk, no matter about your family background, uh, music is universal. Uh, you have different flavors, but the notes and what you can do with it. And then there's also math. I've heard it mentioned that math is a universal language. We can thank the Egyptians for much of how we do math today, and then the Babylonians for adding on to it, and then it goes on from there. But they kind of gave us a lot of our foundational mathematics. I was never really... Uh, exceptional at math. I did okay. I passed my grades, and I did well enough on the ACT to go to college, but it was not my best. Uh, reading, English, science. I liked those. Um, math, I just kind of did. In large part because I think I'm, I'm, I looked at it too rationally. You know, math, math is very fixed. You, 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 one plus one equals two, and, and so on. And then you get it into the more complicated stuff, algebra and, and calculus and trig and college algebra. And I just, I got to a point in my education fairly early on, and I decided I am never going to do this again. It's not going to help me. I'm not going to use it. I have no ambitions of being an engineer or an astrophysicist or anything like that but I guess I need the grade, so I'll do it. And then, like many, many students, <clears throat> you, you finish your last exam, and out the back of your head, all of it just dumps out. My last math class was in 1999. I haven't had to inverse a matrix since, or find the angles on planes since. I'm sure some of it I use without even realizing it, but arithmetic, now that's math I can get behind. Arithmetic you need, day in, day out. Pluses, minuses, multiplication, division, sometimes some squares and cubes. 
spatial relation maybe with the, the, the arithmetic and geometry, but that will get you mostly through life. It really will. I like how simple it is. I like that I don't have to really try to plug in the X's and the Y's or Greek letters that are supposed to mean something and so on. Arithmetic. One plus one equals two. Simple. I like that. There was a book uh, I've mentioned before in a previous sermon, uh, 1984, uh, where the, the ruling class, part of how they controlled people, was to get them to accept a non-truth as truth. And one example in it was, what was it? Two plus two equals five. I believe that's the example in the book. Two plus two equals five. And the moment they could get the population to accept an arithmetic calculation that was incorrect as truth, that was absolute dominance. They could control people, they could manipulate, they could, you could start to break down other things in society if you can get at the most basic of understandings and fracture it apart. One plus one does still equal two. Two plus two does still equal four. And three squared is nine. It is nine. Did you know that there's math in the Bible? And I'm not talking about prophecy. Of course, there's math in prophecy. You count your years from the time that Artaxerxes made this declaration forward 490 years, and who do you find? Messiah. And then you go the 2300 days, and and what do you find? The beginning of the judgment. You have math in the Bible. You also have math in the Bible when it comes to humans. Are you aware of that? If you have your Bible, turn to our scripture reading, but go a little bit before that. We are in Genesis chapter 2. And we are picking up where we left off in our sermon series from the beginning to the end. And today, it is anthropology arithmetic. The study of humans, anthropology. The languages, the behaviors, how they live, how they build, how they dress. Just the study of humanity, anthropology and arithmetic. We are going to learn about God's original math plan, if you will, for mankind today. And we're going to touch a little on how some of those equations, like 1984, are being adjusted and telling you a different solution. Let's begin with the first one we come to, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. Leading up to that, it's, it's just simply a brief historical record where Moses penned, these are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created. He repeats that, and he kind of tells you that at, that at that time, there were certain plants not there because rain hadn't fallen and man hadn't come about yet. That's it. And then we get to our verse. Then the Lord God <clears throat> formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. 
If you're reading from the King James, that would be a living soul. If you have another translation, it might say living being or something like that. Living being, living creature, that's the more accurate translation. There's been some confusion with the soul. But did you notice the arithmetic in this verse? In a very personal, anthropomorphic way, God is being described like He's relatable to us in this context. He's present. He's on this earth that up until now He has just spoken into existence, and He's kneeling down in the dust. He's, He's moving about it. He's about to do something with it. The dirt and the dust are about to be his medium for not speaking into existence, but but crafting into existence. He formed the man of dust from the ground. That's very personal. And that gives us our first part of the equation, the dust. Elsewhere in the Bible, Job is an example. We're told that when you die, your body returns back to the dust. From dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. We're familiar with that. So our first part of this equation in our study of humanity is that there is a physicalness to you and I. The dust, the earth, there's physicality to humanity that we shouldn't overlook, and it's very important. There are times throughout history where the physical nature of who we are or about our world has been looked at as purely negative. The Greeks were very good at doing this. They believed that you didn't have to preserve the physical or look at it with any kind of care, and not really reverence, but, but importance about the physical world. You could use and abuse the resources and the person at will with zero repercussions in the big scheme of things. That's why they were a really debaucherous society. 1 Corinthians gives us a clue to that. Use the body however you will, it doesn't matter. But God is telling us in this passage that our physicality is important because with his own hands, he shaped the forms that we still have. The human form hasn't changed over the thousands of years. The arms, the legs, the feet, the the uprightness, and so on. So part one to our equation is our physicalness, our form. And then God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. You can imagine, if you will, a, a, a potter with his clay shaping the body there on the dirt. And and in only the way that God can, he can take dust and earthly particles and actually make it look really human and and like it's alive, but it's still just kind of there. But it's inanimate. It needs something. And our second part to this equation is that breath of life. You have the dirt, plus God's breath, the only giver of life. You need it. You and I need to breathe. We need that spark of life that can only come from he who exists without another source of life. He is that source. You have to have it. 
The Bible regularly talks about our life as being represented by the breath in the nostrils. The breath in the nostrils is how the Hebrews talked about being alive. And, and are, your, are your arteries working, your blood pumping, is digestion going on? All of that is kind of represented by the existence of God's breath in your nostrils. So you are also alive. But then our final is what we become. So you have one, the dust from the ground, plus two, the breath of life from God, equals three, a living being. We could dig deep into what it means to be a living being as humans. You can't divorce your physicality from being a living being. You can't do it. You have to be physical. We do not exist as purely metaphysical or spiritual beings. You have to have that breath. You have to have the air that we can't see, but we can feel and we inhale and we exhale. You have to have that. You take that away, it's not a good day. But you're also not only that. To be a living being also means that you have a mind, an intellect. You have a will. You have a conscience. You dream. To be a living being are all of those things that happen up here, and it's not only physical, meaning that it's not only firing synapses, but there is also, because we're made in His image, a spiritual nature to, to what we don't see, to what we think, to what we feel, our morality. All of what makes up the mind of humanity is very much a real part of our being a living being. You can't divorce the one from the other. We're, we're all together. Humans have tried to do this. <clears throat> We've come up with a couple of different ways of undoing this equation. Two main ones. One would be monism, meaning that you are only one thing. You're not comprised of separate different elements that come together as one, but you're only one. You're either only spiritual or you're only physical or you're only whatever the case may be. It's usually only physical. You're only physical. And by perfecting your physical self, then you're perfecting who you are. That's where you get into, well, I can, it doesn't matter about my physicality, I'm just going to die and I'm going to go back to the worms. It's rather nihilistic, so I'm going to abuse myself and, and off you go. Or a more ascetic way of doing things, I'm going to isolate myself physically from all of the other temptations around the world. I'm only going to drink water. I'm not going to listen to anything corrupting, no music, no nothing, because I need to really get my physical self perfect. I'm going to be great at exercise and I'm going to be great at everything else because if I physically imperfect, and I don't have to see the doctor or a dentist, then I'm good. Another part of it is dualism. This is the one that seems to have really grabbed hold, and this is the idea that you have a spiritual self encapsulated by a physical self, but they're separate from each other. The one doesn't affect the other. Uh, from Egypt to Greece to Rome, to modern-day kind of understandings about that, that dualism, just the two. Uh, you can die, and then maybe you go into a, a reincarnation cycle. 
or your soul goes back, your spiritual self goes back to heaven. Or, you know, we, have, we, we hear about this. That's dualism. Neither one of those are correct. Because what we see in our equation is that we are physical. We know that we have a mind that we can't quite really map, even with our best technologies. The, the emotions, the dreams, the, the morality. The, you can't map that. You can't really see it, but it's very much there. And we are made in God's image. We are spiritual creatures. We have a spiritual element to us. Even the most hardened atheist looks for something spiritual to fill that need in his life or her life. We're all of that combined. And I would encourage you that if you are considering your anthropology, that you would take your creator's word as it says and don't make it something else. You are physical, dirt. You are breath, life. And that means you become something more than both of those on their own. Intellect, will, morality, etc. Let's look at our second equation. After we look through, and we're skipping many, many, many verses. The rivers that flowed, the stones that were present, the fact that God took the man, at this point only one human on earth, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That's why in landscaping I always said I was carrying on the tradition of the longest career that ever has been. God says in verse 18, The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him or comparable to him. You might think this doesn't sound very much like an equation because it's written in the negative. That throws us off a little bit. This would be like saying one plus zero, one plus zero equals zero. That's the equation that God is saying. Man plus being alone, one plus zero equals not good. That's a, that's a negative, a zero, a null outcome. We're social creatures. God is a social God and we are made in his image. Three members of the Godhead, a whole array of heavenly hosts, other created beings. Then God makes man in his image, and clearly there's something personal about it. He wants that interaction. There's a social fabric to who we are. You can't escape. You can't escape. We know you can't escape. We also know that it's still not good that man should be alone. Because if you're in prison and you break the rules and you're put in solitary confinement, we have laws that say you can't do that for a certain period of, or after, longer than a certain period of time. It hurts the psyche. It makes people very depressed and so on. Whether people follow those laws or not, that's on them. But we know this for a, a reality. It is a truth. You cannot be all alone. And have a good life the way that God intends it. We know this in recent application. In April of 2020, March of 2020, 
when everyone was sent home and told to stay in their houses and you couldn't go out and socialize and you, had to, you couldn't go talk to grandma or grandpa in the, the nursing home, you couldn't bury your dead, you couldn't have marriages, you couldn't, all of that. And even if you did go to the couple of places that were open like Walmart, weren't you supposed to, what, stay apart from each other and cover up your face? All of that speaks to the social nature that humans are. Communication broke down. Kids weren't learning how to speak at the proper rate. Education on our youth, they believe that this is going to take much longer uh, to write itself than the months or the, the year to two years that it impacted them. Rates of I have to think, what, are they, what do they call it? Rates of deaths of despair rose significantly during and shortly after that time. People became anxious and, and tense and can we trust one another? I can't hear what you're saying. I don't even know who you are because I've only got your eyes to go on. All of that as social creatures creates an edge. It creates something in our psyche that is not healthy. Some people, many people, might have had good intentions with what they were doing or suggesting. But the reality is that as social creatures, God has said it is not good that they should be alone. And any time that we have tried to forcefully separate, it doesn't end well. That's why people who really struggle with depression really kind of get in on themselves, and the more they just isolate and get in on themselves, the worse the depression gets, not the better. That's why, as a punishment, I might take my kids and put them in timeout, but only for a handful of minutes because then they need to be reunited with the family. We need those social aspects, and it's baked into our spirituality. You cannot have the most fulfilling spiritual experience as a Christian on your own. You are saved one-on-one between you and God. But we are the body of Christ. The body has many components. The body has many parts. The body necessitates those parts being attached to one another. You take a finger and you separate it from the body and you set it off over there. What happens to the finger? It dies and then it decays and it's good for nothing. You can take a separated finger from an accident, put it on ice, get to a doctor who knows what they're doing, and what can they do? Reattach it. When the finger that's been separated by one means or another is reattached back to the body, is that a good thing? Can you save the finger? Can it retain its function and its purpose? Absolutely. And that's true for any body parts. My kids seem to be doing well without tonsils, but we're not talking about them. You are a social creature. Humans are that, and it impacts you not just in your personal life, but your spiritual life. In Hebrews, it talks about there are some of those who don't come and meet and worship together with the congregation, and the writer says, don't be like them. 
Don't neglect the gathering of yourselves one to another. Throughout the New Testament church, what were they doing? Coming together, worshiping together, eating together, staying up so late at night together that kids are falling out of windows. But together, one of the first things that the enemy tries to do to fracture that is to start separating one from another. Many different tools at the disposal. Force physical separation, gossip, slander, unhealthy prejudging someone because you don't like their shoes that day or that they sat in your pew. The enemy has different ways of interrupting that social fabric of ours, that, that ingrained part of our being and setting us against one another or telling us that we're better on our own. The United States is an immensely hyper-individualistic society, and it's not been good. It's not been good. So in this equation, rather than what God is saying, one plus zero equals zero, that's what God has said the equation is. It really is one plus any other number equals good. You need more added to you than just you. It's good for you. It's for your benefit. For Adam, who was alone, God wanted him to find this out for himself. I don't know why. I have a, I have a thought But God wanted Adam to find this out for himself, so he gave him a task to do, and in the task of naming the animals, Adam noticed that every animal had a pair, a male and a female. One went with the other. You never found one all by itself, and you never found two exactly like one another, but they were same in kind, but different in purpose or makeup, if you will. Two dogs, two elephants, two platypies, platypuses. Everything had a pair, and, and I, can, I can imagine, I can picture in my mind Adam doing this. Oh, you're this animal, and you're that, and oh, that's funny, long neck, long legs, wow. Um, this is your name, this is that name. And after you go through, I don't know, 50 or 100 or 200 of them, and you're giving names to all of them, maybe he just started looking around. Maybe he looked behind him. Maybe, maybe he wanted to wander and kind of look behind bushes or see if a tree was hiding Something. Maybe he started calling out Marco. Maybe he wanted to find who would respond with Polo. Here I am. But the man didn't find his other half. He didn't find who was supposed to be his complement. He didn't find the other part of the equation that he discovered he was missing. God had already said that it wasn't good for him to be alone, and now God fixes that broken equation. In verses 21 and 22, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man while he slept. He took one of the ribs, closed up its place with flesh. From the rib, the Lord God made into a woman. That's the same word as like building a house. God is a builder in this. He's he's fashioning this woman for him and brought her to the man. You were looking for your other half. You were looking for someone like you, but not exactly like you. Here you go. 
God brought that missing part of the equation to the man, and the man immediately recognized, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. Even in the names, you have that super close relationship between the sexes. You need it. So in other words, the equation is M plus F equals capital F. Male plus female equals family. The core social structure for humanity. Male plus female equals family. You have to have it. It's been, it's been you can read so many different types of takes on what it is to have someone, a helper fit for him or a helper complement to him. When we look at men and women, we know that they're not exactly the same. We know this. It doesn't take long. We know that men, broadly speaking, and that's how we're talking in broad terms, men are more oriented to spatial relations. They're more interested in mechanical things. Their minds tend to be just much more logical in just how they go, and they're just like, oh, that makes sense, A, B, C. That's what I'm going to do. We also know the faults of men. We also know that the, the, the greater tendency towards the mechanics means that they sometimes often miss the softer parts to life. You get so caught up in just the machines and, and fixing and doing and building and conquering, you forget to actually settle down and have a life sometimes. Men get so focused on the logical that we often hurt others not thinking about the empathy part, that compassionate part. Sometimes we're so caught up in just being strong that we forget to protect. We hurt. Men are just wired that way at times. Men don't talk as much. We don't share as much of our feelings. We, we prefer a lot of alone time, and the list can go on what men are like. Women, on the other hand, well, we need women. I need my wife to balance me out. She's perfect at it. She brings an energy to our marriage I appreciate. She is so much more empathetic to what other people are feeling and kind of going through. She surprises me. I'm like, are you sure? They don't seem that way to me. I have to, I have to take her word at it. She has, and, and ladies, you're, I think you're going to know what I mean, and men, you're going to know this too. There's a female sixth sense. How many of our ladies here have known something, but you couldn't quite express that you know what you know about a person? I don't have that. My wife has it in spades, and I've talked to many other ladies that can say the same thing. I can't really tell you, but I know <laughs> about so-and-so. We need that. The, we need women with their more nurturing side to be the child bearers because little kids need the nurturing. Remove moms out of that equation. Men can kind of do it. Dads can kind of do it. It's not like a mom 
absolutely not like a mom. You remove a dad from the equation, and kids, moms do it, and there are heroic mothers that have raised their kids on their own. You remove a dad from it, our society tells you what fatherless homes turn into on a broad scale. Increased crime, increased depression, a fracture in the home, less trust, etc. That's just borne out by data. Dads add to the family unit something that moms at their best efforts can do, but it's not like a dad. It's just not. And then, of course, we have to look at if, if God had just led another Adam to Adam, our family tree would have been really short. There's also just a basic necessity for different but complementary on the biological level. We know what I'm talking about. You have to have men and women for the continuation of humanity. You can't do a different equation and have a continuation of humanity. Not going to happen. I find that this equation, more so than the breaking down of our social aspect, this equation is most under attack. In who men are as men, and women are as women. And one cannot be the other, or vice versa, no matter how hard you try, you cannot. You might gain the appearance of one. We're really good at some of our surgeries. You might gain the appearance of one, but you can't be one. It is anthrop... anthrop anthropologically incorrect to suggest anything other than a binary. It's teleologically incorrect, that's the philosophy of being, to suggest that men can be women or women can be men. You can't. And on a broad scale, it's under attack. And it has not been good. For longer, the equation of man, male plus female equals family has been under attack. Many, many, many years ago, it was proposed that a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. That started the inevitable trend towards a fracturing of God's original equation. Because one, men and women are not perfectly identical in all things at all times. Men need women, women need men. You take one of those away, because the other way is true. Men, you can't say a man needs a woman like a fish needs a bicycle. That also doesn't work. Then you have the redefinition of marriage in recent years. That also breaks apart God's equation. And it does break down the family. And if we're looking at continuing the species, it also breaks that down. That's not to say that people can't love, and that's not to say that we are unkind, and that's not to say any of those other things. I'm just simply looking at God's design for humanity. God's equations 
in our anthropology. Because if we are to understand who we are in the big picture of things, we have to see how God, our Creator, made us and designed us with that purpose in mind. And that purpose is to be a combination of the physical, the spiritual, the mental, and the breath, the life. God's equation, He intended, He designed us to be social creatures. Even into eternity, we're all gathering together like, like you know, just in a great multitude on the sea of glass. That, that's social. God says, I want to be with them. I'm going to dwell in their midst and be their God and they will be my people. That's social. Can't break it apart. They will come together from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath to worship God, Isaiah says. That's a social worship. God intended us to be that way in our anthropology arithmetic. And then God also purposefully designed male and female to complement each other, not one superior or one inferior, but equal and different. And we need the differences and the equal. We need it all. The moment we start to break apart any of these equations, you're going to end up with a failing grade in the anthropology arithmetic test. Something's going to go wrong. Something's going to get messed up. And God's original intention and design is not going to be realized. I don't have the answer for all the other many reasons or studies or philosophies about us and what makes us up. But when I look at these three sections of Genesis chapter 2, these five verses four verses, I can't help but walk away with not an overly complicated calculus equation or even inverting a matrix that takes forever to do. This is simple arithmetic. This is one plus one equals two. And God knew all along what he had in mind, and it was perfect. In its original design, and it's an original fabrication, and it's original purpose. At the end of the sixth day, after mankind had been made, with all of this built into us, in His image, God didn't just say, it is good. What did He say, my friends? It is very good. Our anthropology arithmetic is at the heart of God and not just saying good, but very good. And I would encourage each one of you to thank God for those truths, to defend them where you can, and to praise Him that He knows best. I believe, and the Bible tells us, that even though we won't be marrying and giving in marriage, Jesus says, when we get to heaven, the rest of it stays the same. Men and women will be there. Our social fabric remains. Our composition of physical, spiritual, and breath 
is still there from beginning to end our anthropology arithmetic stays the same and i would encourage you all to praise god that that is true let's pray heavenly father we thank you for your word we thank you that you knew what you were doing when you fashioned us and i pray that you would forgive us where we try to break apart what you intended as a very good and what you declared as such. I pray that where we stumble and fall, where we fracture our families, where husbands and wives are unkind or cruel to one another, where we don't respect one another or love as you have loved us, I pray that you would forgive us and put that bond back together. Lord, I pray where we have abused our bodies different than you intended. Overworking, not enough sleep, gluttony in its various forms, substance abuse in its various forms. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us and set us again on a right path. And Lord, where either by our own choosing or by what is forced upon us, when we have separated one from another, Lord, I pray that you would bring us back together. I pray that we would be called your sons and daughters, saints of Jesus, united by, in, and through the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I am so grateful that Jesus Christ saw fit to become one of us, to unite humanity with heaven, not just for those years he was here, but for eternity. I am grateful that you know us in and out, and you are compassionate towards our needs. And Lord, we praise your name for all of this. May we not forget it, but may we be true and faithful to your intent and purpose. Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.